0: I have a question to start off today. How far would you go to show your religious faith? There's a reason for that question. How would you react to someone spitting at you? Because in Kenya, there's a tribe called the Maasai, not to be confused with Masai, or a Torah portion, that's coming up in a couple of weeks, actually. And spitting is considered an act of friendship. The tribesmen actually spit at each other as a greeting. And then they spit again when they leave each other. When two Maasai Masai, finalize a business transaction, they spit at each other. Or they'll spit in their hands and shake hands, combining the spit. And that's a way of sealing the deal. According to the Maasai, it's considered an act of disrespect not to spit during these times. As a matter of fact, spitting in their culture is a sign of respect. And it's a way to wish someone good luck. They even spit on their newborn babies. Let's move into uh, rural India both the Hindus and the Muslims there allow their babies to be tossed off the roof of their shrines and then caught in a stretched-out bed sheet about 30 to 50 feet below. That ritual actually dates back about 700 years, and that's when infant mortality was high, and there was little to no medical knowledge available And families had few places to turn for help. It's believed in their practice that they give their children long lives and healthy lives by doing this. Now, come to the Western world. Especially to many of us who look at spitting at each other and throwing babies off roofs. Not necessarily what we would consider the right thing to do. Matter of fact, some of us would think it's rude. Some will think it's criminal. Or just plain unsanitary. And that's according to a Western worldview. But they have an essential element within the cultures that they they practice these things. The ones that practice other things that we would find reprehensible, irresponsible, or again, just plain unsanitary, are those things that are part of a communal understanding within the cultures that practice those things. And they've been developed, and they developed those practices over centuries, much like some of the things we do from the Torah. It became, becomes part of their culture. It's what they do. Now to an outsider, of course, it becomes something that can be unimaginable to even think of these rituals. Even when you put them into the context that I just gave you. You know why they do it, but to us it's something we would never deal with or put up with. The only way to truly understand is you have to be on the inside of a community, as opposed to an outsider. That way you can experience and appreciate the power of their practices and rituals of their faith. This week we find ourselves in Parashat Kukat, which includes one of Judaism's most unexplainable, one of them at least, rituals. Charlene read it to us this morning from Numbers chapter 19, verse 2. I'm not going to read the entire verse, but in there we find the mitzvah of the para-adumah, the red heifer. To say that it's unusual would actually be an understatement. Even some outsiders find it quite abnormal. In essence, it's an elaborate ritual of purification. It involves blood, fire, ashes, water, and lots of steps that almost require a separate instruction manual or even a degree in science to perform it and understand why it's being done and how to do it right. But the resulting formula produces, as Numbers 19:13 says, nida, uh, which the new—I'm sorry—the Tree of Life version translates as "cleansing water." Others, which some other translations may say waters of purification. These cleansing waters are to be used to purify anyone who has become impure. But what's interesting, we actually saw it this morning in the reading, that the process of making this cleansing water causes the one that makes it to be unclean, impure himself as a result of handling the various elements. Or to say it a different way, it becomes strange to the reader that in purifying one thing, you leave the one who is doing the purifying impure. We find that in several places here. In verse 7 of chapter 19, it says that the Kohen is to wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in water. Afterwards, he may come back into the camp. But the Kohen is what? Unclean until evening. In verse 8, it says that whoever was supposed to be handling everything and burning the red heifer, he will be unclean until evening. And also the one that was charged with gathering up the ashes in order to make this concoction would himself become unclean. So something that's supposed to purify makes someone impure, which is odd. Now, if I've left anyone scratching their head in confusion, don't feel all alone. Because it leaves me baffled every time I read it, which is at least once a year. But if we're confused, we're in really good company. Because the red heifer ritual is one uh, that has been challenged, a challenge for scholars for decades, even centuries. Matter of fact, One there's one Midrash that indicates King Solomon, who was what? The wisest man to ever live. But the Midrash says that he was mystified by the reasons for the red heifer. So if we're mystified, guess what? We're in good company. So how can you and I, here in the 21st century, possibly be able to relate to such an odd thing that even the sages really couldn't come to grips with. One of many commentaries on the red heifer that I read actually recounts a story of Moses who witnessed God studying this law of the red heifer himself. So based on that commentary, if God had to study the law in order to explain it, then I'm convinced that any attempt on my part, to try to explain this is probably not going to even come close. And if you read any of the commentaries, you read what the sages said, what the rabbis said, they would agree. Because even the rabbis consider the red heifer to be one of the greatest mysteries of the Torah. Even they've wondered how it's possible that the ashes of a sacrificial animal can purify anyone from sin and impurity. Think about it. The ashes are what makes someone impure in the first place. But the ashes are now going to make someone pure. Go figure that one out. Now, one of the interesting ways that's been offered to represent this particular law and some of the other mitzvot, by the way, that can appear to be irrational in trying to classify them is to classify them. The mitzvot that we read about in the Torah tend to fall into three basic categories. And that being said, these three categories are mishpatim, edot, and chukim. As they are used in the Torah, all are synonymous with the term mitzvah. And they all refer to every commandment of God. When you know, we read that if you violate one point, you violate all. So it, goes to, it stands to reason that in order to quote, quote one or keep one, you're quoting or keeping them all. The first category, of course, is mishpatim, which means law or judgments. Within that category are the laws that some scholars say we humans would have eventually formulated on our own even if we didn't have them written down in the Torah for us. That would include the Ten Statements or the Ten Commandments, those type laws. You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery, and so on. Those are the ones that a society would adopt and adapt to without it being written down for us. That's what they say. That's because these laws make sense. They actually display morality. They actually are sensible. As a result, almost everyone can understand the reasons why these laws are important. The Mishpatim. Referring to Mishpatim, the rabbis say, if the Torah had not been given, we would have learnt modesty from the cat and honesty from the ant. That's how simple they are. That's how understandable they are. That's how we can relate to them so easily. One important concept in keeping God's command is that, quote, the principal thing is the act. As an example, in the case of tefillin, which is, of course, for those that need to know, it's the two black boxes, one that you put on your forehead and one that you put on your arm each weekday morning before you pray. But if a person has appropriately prepared himself mentally for putting on tefillin, but doesn't actually put them on, guess what? He has not fulfilled the commandment. On the other hand, if he has put them on but without the proper intentions, he's actually performed the commandment. Commandment being to put them on. Not the preparation, not the thought process, but to put them on. The next category would be the mitzvot that even though we might understand them, we as human beings would probably not necessarily have thought of them on our own. Those are the ones called the edot, which means testimonies. They include things like the observance of Shabbat and the other appointed times, the muadim. Chabad actually refers to these saying that had God not commanded them, a man would not have invented them. So in some ways, they are not as rational as the mishpatim. But many, including some of us, have learned to appreciate their meaning and their purpose. Shabbat, we are observing right now. The last category, which is the one our parasha is named for, are the hukim, which are the decrees. The hukim seem to actually defy common sense in many ways. And even explanation, as we talked about the red heifer. Because of this, it's said that traditional understanding tells us we should observe and obey these laws. Why? Because God said so. Is that an explanation? It's enough. You may not understand it, but God said so, so we do it. Hokim would include the laws of impurity and purity as well as the odd mitzvah of the red heifer. And there are many scholars and rabbis who would include the laws of kashrut, the dietary laws in this category. These are the laws that, in our own understanding, seem confusing sometimes, even puzzling. They don't seem to make any sense, especially when you view them in the context of the world we live in today, especially in the Western world, when everything needs to make sense. And it has to be rational. Or else if we can't understand it, why should we do it? But despite all the reasons that they may not make much sense to us, we actually come to realize when we read them that there must be a reason these chukim were included and instituted in the Torah. Because we know that there's not one Shot or tittle, that can be replaced, removed, or added. So whatever God said is what he meant. Why? We're not talking about all of that today. But we come to realize that he had to have a reason for these mitzvot. And the rabbis, in turn, included them in our traditions in one shape or form. The culture where when these laws were created was much different than ours. First of all, we didn't have nice air condition they didn't have nice air conditioning like we do. They were out in the desert. There was an understanding that it was the role of community within society that was more important than the role of individuals. Because individuals cannot produce and promote the value of the community like the entire community can. Because individuals are just that. You I can pick two or three people here and it'll be the whole story of you get two rabbis in a room and you got three opinions. So it doesn't it it takes more than just those two people, it takes the community. And that's foreign to a Western mindset. That's something that Westerners just can't understand because the Western world promotes independence as a prominent value in our lives. So laws like kashrut, like the dietary laws, the ritual bathing, the purification ritual of the red heifer, it provided a cultural standard that put the needs of community ahead of the needs of the individual members of that community. Many of the laws we find in the Torah were put there to help support the health and preservation of the entire community. Which, of course, would involve and include the individuals, but not as individuals. So the individual, in the end, it didn't matter if it came at the expense of the well-being of the community. I mean, it, it was not a thing that you thought of. The individual could not cause the well-being of the community, to be diminished or hurt in any way. Now, it's unfortunate, and it's even sad that within today's society, it seems like this concept of a communal well-being has become a fleeting concept. Although it's the way God created us to be part of community. The thing is any rule that promotes the community above an individual challenges us as westerners because of this thing where we're encouraged to express our individual our individuality and make sure our individual needs and desires are met because we live in a culture today that emphasizes and even encourages independence think about this example Consider the security at airports. We allow what actually seems to be invasion of our privacy because it's a law that benefits personal safety. So the law is there to protect us as individuals. So if we're going to use air travel to take us from place to place, we follow this law that's actually beneficial to the community too. But only if we decide that it's worthwhile for us, as individuals. Jonathan David Hate is a, an American social psychologist, and a, he's a professor, professor of ethical leadership at New, New York University's Stern School of Business. He wrote a thesis entitled, and we're not going to talk about this thesis, actually, but I thought it was cute, Affect Culture and Morality, or Is It Right to Eat Your Dog?, Well, Actually, is it wrong to eat your dog? But see, he calls this whole mindset that we're talking about the ethics of autonomy. Gosh. Which, for those that need a definition, it means self-governing or independence, which is part of what we've been talking about. He wrote a book called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And he suggests that societies such as ours create moral systems that are individualistic, which is to say independent and self-reliant, and universalist, which is to say people who believe that all humankind will eventually be saved. He goes on to suggest that this would produce people who see, as he calls it, a world full of separate objects rather than relationships. He would say that we buy into ideas like justice and equality, but not necessarily at the expense of our own individual desires. As you know, for months we've we've been talking about relationship and how important relationship is in community. He's saying just the opposite. This would create non-relationship. But obviously this type of moral system would not succeed in every culture. Nor would the systems that I talked about at the opening exist in every culture or succeed, especially not here in the Western world. Now, there are many others that view the concepts of relationship, context, groups, and institutions as what defines them as society. Hate refers to this as the ethics of community and that should sound very familiar to any of us who follow God's commands. They are all about community. They're not about individuals. They're not about me. They're not about you. They're about the community. Judaism exists in a realm where the ethics of community is standard practice. and So these are the very concepts that put community first. And in doing so, they create an interdependence rather than an independence. And that, by design, tends to strengthen not only the community, but the individuals who live within that community. And that's the perspective that makes the most sense. It's the one that can bring us closer to beginning and understanding of rituals like the red heifer. Understanding this whole thing of impurity and purity from, purity and impurity from the same source. It could also cause us to recognize that it's rational when it comes to community. If you think about it from the singular individual point of view, none of it makes sense. So we can look at it this way. The chukim or the decrees of the Torah might help us to see that what seems irrational to the individual will cause us to recognize that it's irrational when it comes to community. The German rabbi, scholar, and theologian, Rabbi Leo Baek, said that Judaism was founded equally upon both mystery and commandment. He said commandments like the chukim teach us that the ethics of community can move us beyond our natural ethical intentions. For us to live as a community means that we sometimes need to look beyond ourselves and follow an action because we are part of something bigger than ourselves. He says, then what seems to be irrational becomes rational as we work and strive together create that better world that God has called us to be part of. Ultimately, understanding the reasons behind the red heifer and the performance of this purification process is far beyond our intellect. We, we could not fathom, if the rabbis and the sages could not figure it out, how are we going to figure it out? All we know is God said it. Do we have to do this purification ritual with the red heifer? Not right now. There's these, there are these people that have supposedly found the perfect red heifers. But it seems like almost all of them, once they really start inspecting them, find out that there is a blemish. There is not the perfect red heifer today. Now, prophetically speaking, the para the red heifer, points us where? To Yeshua to Yeshua the Messiah and His sacrificial death on the execution stake. He who was perfect, unblemished, and sinless, just like the red heifer had to be, took upon Himself the sins of the world so that we could become the righteousness of God. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. You remember what they did with the red heifer? You remember what it said in... Verse the latter part of verse 3, it said that LSR will take her outside the camp. Wait a minute, what happened to the altar? He didn't slaughter the sacrifice at the altar and splash the blood on the altar. She had to be taken outside so as not to defile the altar or the community. Well, Yeshua, as we read in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12 was slaughtered outside the gate, outside of Jerusalem, not at the temple. The book of Hebrews confirms for us that it is through the blood of Yeshua HaMashiach that we will be purified from all our sins. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning at verse 13, it says, For if the blood of goats and bulls And the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Yeshua is our red heifer. Those of us who have been cleansed by his blood, those of us who have accepted his sacrificial death, to cleanse us. So whoever has received the sanctification of cleansing, the sprinkling, if you will, of the blood of Yeshua, has experienced that cleansing water of our red heifer. And in conclusion, Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15 says, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. We've been given forgiveness. We've been given sanctification. We've been given a new life in Yeshua. He is not just a sacrificed lamb, but he is our sacrificial Paru our red heifer, who died outside the gates in order to purify us from all our sins. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we thank you especially for your word, but even more so for Yeshua, who fulfilled your sanctification for us. That we could stand before you cleansed and purified. That we no longer have to be separated outside the camp, outside of the community, but you've called us to be part of community, a community that celebrates the cleansing blood of Yeshua a community that works together and does not seek after our individual needs. But in doing so, Abba, we know that as we support community and community supports us, our individual needs will be met as well. So we thank you and we bless you because you are great and greatly to be praised. It is you who give us the way to escape death, the death, the sin of death, And that you, O Lord, will always watch after us and keep us. We thank you for your Ruach HaKodesh, your Holy Spirit, who leads us and guides us, who turns us back when we might go the wrong way, when we wander off on a path that wasn't yours. And we thank you for your grace and your mercy when we do. Because it's you that leads us and guides us. It's not us. It's not about us. Thank you, Abba, because you are great and greatly to be praised. And we love you today. We love you. We love you. We love you. In Yeshua's name. Amen.